Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to, well, welcome back to Ness and Dorma. Our return is here. A belated return, really, akin to Janino's second spell at Borough, with only a mild promise of it being marginally more successful, I suppose. I am Lee Calvert, as you know, and joining me tonight for this return episode, wait, it's tonight as we're recording, it could be today when you listen or whatever, is Rob Smythe. Hello, Rob. Hello, mate. How are you doing? Good, good, good. And also the author of the fabulous book, the title, The Story of the First Division, the Guardian's own Scott Murray. Hello, Scott. Hi there, Lee. Coming up in this episode, we have another addition to the underrated Hall of Fame, or will it be an addition? We've got to decide after we after we have a chat about it. We've got a journeyman of the week, and sandwiched in between those two things will be our long discussion about the cryptically titled Liverpool and the Perch. While you're having to ponder on what the hell that might actually mean, um, let me tell you all about where you can get in touch with us. You can get in touch with the pod on Twitter, at NessundormaPod, um, or there's an email address, contact at, ne- at NessundormaPod.com, and there's NessundormaPod.com, the address on the website. Um, Rob, you're not on Twitter or anything, are you? So we don't bother trying to tell people about that. Scott, are you on Twitter? No. Do you do Scott. any of that stuff? No, oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the very thought. <laughs> um Right, as part of our return, before we get into the conversation, just going to tell you about the fact that we have launched the Patreon site. It's at patreon.com slash nessundorma, and that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash nessundorma, where you can give us a bit of support to keep us in decent microphones and equipment, and more importantly, I suppose, help keep us in a bit of bread and spread, because a, a, <laughs> a lot of people on here are freelancers. Um, subscribers will be listening to this now and knowing that you've received this episode three days earlier than anybody else. So this episode still does go out, but it's three three days after subscribers and patrons. They also have access to exclusive written content, including Rob's brilliant 5,000-word opus on Sampdoria's 1991 Scudetto, which is a wonderful read. 
And as one of our closest and most trusted friends, if you're a patron, you'll get a mention on here just to let you know how grateful we are. So brace yourselves for the people who signed up first. It's a bit of a list. A huge thank you to those who have been the first out of the gate. And that is, here we go, Adam Cam, Alan Glynn, Alex Evans, Chris Boyle, Christopher Parker, Craig Pont, Dan Shears, Daniel Morkin-Farstad, David Fox, John Wood, Kevin Hay, Kyle Willis, Lorcan Connolly, Mark Jackson, Mark Parker, Martin Ramsey, Matt Emerson, Matt Haywood, Michael Pearson, Michael Wicks, Nathan Slingsby, Neil Brown, Nicholas Howbukowski, Patrick Cleary, Paul Sullivan, Phil Robinson, Rob Steer, Sean Cooper, Stuart McMullen, Suleiman Banyan, Thomas Newton, Tim Woods, Tom Goddard, Tony Hughes, Tony Saint, Turlock Kelly and Brian Healy. Thank you, every single one of you who have chosen to hand over some of your hard-earned to support us in this effort that we're going to try and throw out to you every month or so. We've got, because you're patrons, we've got our first Q&A episode coming up in September, which only patrons will be able to send questions in for. So if you want to get the pod early, if you want our eternal gratitude, and if you want the chance to fire questions our way, then you're going to have to get stuck in at patreon.com slash Nessendorma. Thank you very much, everybody who's done that so far. Right then, to business, I suppose. We said we'd start with an, with the underrated Hall of Fame and a nomination for the underrated Hall of Fame. Listener Jeremy Davis emailed to say, first of all, he's pleased that we're back. Well, we'll see if he's still pleased at the end of this, Jeremy, but thank you very much. And he, he said he'd like to mount a campaign to get David Platt into the underrated Hall of Fame. Well, Jeremy, your epic campaign of one email has succeeded because we're actually going to talk about it right now. So before we get into talking about whether he's underrated or not, a little bit about uh, David Platt. He was born in Chadderton, Lancashire. David Platt became an apprentice with Manchester United. He signed professional forms in the summer of 1984. As an aside, as an Oldham fan, I want to know how the hell we missed out on, a, on <laughs> this because literally he was born in the place where an end of our fucking ground is named after. So, you know, it's a little bit rich that we somehow missed out on him. Anyway, it didn't go so well at United. He was released by Ron Atkinson on a free transfer in February 1985. He went to Crew and immediately, who immediately signed him. And he spent four seasons in the fourth division, scoring 55 times in 134 league games. He left near the end of the 87-88 season when Graham Taylor signed him for Villa for £200,000. And I suppose this is where his underrated odyssey begins, really, from the year, from the Villa years onwards. I suppose it's worth pausing here to ask ourselves to ask us to start talking about what kind of player was David Platt. Who wants to start me off? Um, yeah, go on then. Um, I just think of him as the kind of classic goal scoring midfielder. Really, his late run to the box, superb timing, very good finisher. My feeling on Platt is that he was kind of appropriately rated during his career, but he's been underrated subsequently mm. um, and kind of fairly forgotten, which, and there's a few reasons for that, partly because his career kind of faded away, had a terrible spell at Arsenal, um, and partly because his best football was played in an England side that was shit, basically. <laughs> so people kind of don't remember them with any particular fondness. Um I, I mean, at the time, I remember think I remember him getting a lot of credit. You know, he played in Serie A at the time; it was the best league in the world by a mile. Did well, unlike many British players. And whenever England played, he was always seen as kind of the main player, apart from Gascoigne, obviously, which is different. 
Um, but it just feels like he's like completely forgotten about it. No one ever talks about him really. But his record, what was it, twenty-seven in fifty something for in midfield? Twenty-seven yeah. in sixty-two. Yeah. In a in a bad team, that's really good. I think. I think is it the issue that nothing grows in the shadow of Paul Gascoigne? Yeah, everything possibly. withers, you know, in the shadow of Paul Gascoigne. Yeah, possibly, and also it, kind of his timing was a bit unfortunate. I mean, he did do really well at Italian ninety, but as like you say, overshadowed by Gascoigne, and then he just faded at the wrong time. He, although he played in a couple of games in Euro '86, he was effectively gone by then. Um, well, he'd won he'd won the PFA Player of the Award, Player of the Year award in nineteen ninety. Yeah, he had a brilliant season. Brilliant season. And, the then, and he broke into the... I didn't realise he'd, he'd only just broken into the squad, really, when he went to the 1990 yeah. Cup and wasn't a starter at the beginning. No, he wasn't. His debut was... Was his debut Brazil, March 1990? Yeah, I think memory. so. He was on the it's bench. quite late. And it, I, I think, I might be misremembering this, but I'm pretty sure Robson decided at one point he was going to take Platt or Gascoigne. Um, and then they both played so well, particularly Gascoigne against Czechoslovakia. He thought, sod that, I'll have to take them both. Um yeah, and I suppose the other thing is he only had, Platt only had one really good season in English football, which is at 89 90, because the next year he played well, but Villa finished about 16th. Then he went to Italy, which is, you know, all right, Serie I was on Channel 4, but it was still slightly out of sight. Came back, had his moments at Arsenal, particularly a, a famous goal against United in 97 98, but generally he was slightly past his best. And I wonder also whether, in comparison to people like Robson, Gerard Lampard, similar players in terms of goal scoring for midfield whether they all have the support of uh a supporters of a big club and i know villa are a big club but what i mean is it's not quite the same is it and i know Platt played for arsenal but arsenal fans don't really remember him with a huge amount of fondness so maybe it's just simply that it's weight of numbers you talk about him yeah well villa don't loom large on the uh, punditry panels do they you know ex-villa and, players don't loom large there do they let's be honest yeah i think that big club thing is is a huge part of it um, the fact that he wasn't one of the, wasn't playing one of the sort of media darlings, um, yeah. and you know, well, he did play for Juventus when he was in in um, Italy, but he kind of, where did did he start out? Bari, am I? Yeah, well, yeah. This is the thing. That, this is this is yes. Rob's good point about the fact that you know was he underrated at the time? He broke the British transfer records going to Bari. You know, you can't be underrated and go for that kind of wedge, can no, you? But, but there was a weird thing about Platt, uh, and it was partially tied in with the the sort of the clubs that he was at, and certainly Arsenal at the time weren't quite at the same. They were going through a little dip when he was there. Um, I think that because they didn't get the media attention, he kind of he sort of arrived fully formed, just bang. He was there. There was that. Um, there was that game against when Villa ripped, was it Everton apart on the yes. match? And they were 6 0 up after an hour, weren't they? And I, I'm pretty sure that's the game where he's gone on this like yeah. sort of baroque run and Brian was <laughs> yeah. going, oh my God, what's Platt doing? And that was kind <laughs> of the first time he was in the sort of national um, consciousness, I think. And so he, he kind of rose very quickly and was just there. And then he fizzled away very quietly. So the, the, there was never any, at either end of his career, there was never quite this sort of um, excitement and expectation. Oh, he just happened to be this good player in this Villa side that came out of nowhere. Mm. I think that's a really good point. One other thing about him is, I mean, he essentially was a goal-scoring midfielder, but I think there were elements of kind of subtlety to his game that he doesn't always get credit for. There's one goal he scored for Villa. It might have been against Coventry. It was the 1991 season, this fantastic chip 
And there was a goal against Arsenal in the year that he almost won the league where he completely does. I think it's O'Leary, dummies to volley, just pulls it down, sends him off in another direction, scores. He was just a very, very good player around the He scored the that um, spectacular overhead kick for Sampdoria, didn't he? The bicycle kick that he's kind of oh, most yes, known yes. for. Which, um, yeah, it's, he was, as, you, as you said, Rob, he was the best player under Graham Taylor by a country mile, but obviously not many people have got nice things to say about that period. There's a quote from Graham Taylor which says, <laughs> when he says, uh, when I hit the pillow at night, one player I never have to worry about is David Platt. And I wonder if he kind of suffers... He both sounds and looks a bit gormless. <laughs> and, do you know what I mean? And that's just, you don't have to agree with me. So I, and I'm wondering, and I mean this genuinely, I'm wondering whether if you add the Taylor factor against with that, is that it makes him easy well, to he, forget. He, had, he did suffer from a kind of lack of aura. I mean, I don't yeah, know. Whether, exactly, yeah, I think that's, I don't know that's a nice way of putting it, Scott. Yeah, thank know, you. Well, uh, yeah, I, mean, uh, I don't know whether I go as far as Gormless, although he did do that Tic Tac advert, which I don't know if you I remember. Where remember he, had that, to, no. he had to sort of throw a bag over his, like a sports bag over his shoulder, turn sassily to camera and, and deliver the line, what a refreshing tactic. <laughs> and it was just... Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't remember it, but I'm going to look it up. And I refuse to believe he didn't look gormless while doing that. I'm sorry, he, he didn't deliver the line with any great um, sort of theatrical flourish. Yes, I would say, and th- and that's a shame because if you, I, I think what you both said really is exactly right that he was he was a great player, but he was a very unshowy player. So even when he did something fantastic like his extremely famous goal against Belgium, mm. it was still. Well, it was just, you know, he just did that. He didn't see, you know, and he obviously celebrated, but there wasn't anything particularly memorable to sort of, you know, there was no plat mania as a result. Yeah. Um, and you could argue that he did at least as much in that at that World Cup as, as Gascoigne did. But, of course, Gascoigne had the, you know, strength of personality. Is he is he a better, was he a, look at his England career, is he a better international midfielder than Gerard Lampard and Scholes? For England? Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think so. Yeah, I don't think there should be a huge amount of argument with that. Club level, no, but um, Scholes had a spell as England that was really good, but then he faded to the point where he said himself he would have dropped himself yeah. long before long before he retired. I feel like, I don't know, I might be misremembering, but I feel like Lampard, again, had a good spell around Euro 2004, not a huge amount. Gerard had moments, but oh, no, I don't think. I mean, even, even Euro 92 when England were rubbish, Platt scored their only, oh, I said he won goal, but he scored, and it was a bit, <laughs> but yeah, but he was a, he was just always a threat. Um, yeah, I think he was much better personally for England, not overall, but just for England. Well, his kind of last great act as a player was a, a late-headed winner in a 3-2 victory over Man United in 97-98. He yeah, went off to be... And then he was a bit of a, a, a sort of... He, he had a dabble at coaching, but he didn't last very long, I don't think, did he? He had a, a stab at with England under-21s, a stab at Forest. Sampdoria. Didn't you go to Sampdoria? Wasn't there some issue over coaching badges or something? Something like that. He was at City for a little while and last last heard of in in Italy. In Italy. India, I think. I think everyone thought he would make a great manager just because he was obviously a smart player. Hmm. Um, but yeah, a lot of a lot of these players, players around that era, people who thought would make good managers, none of them did really. Um, everyone assumed Brian Robson would look now and think, actually, what are you basing that on? Platt's still a bit of a surprise, but um, yeah, didn't happen. 
But a good play. Could use both feet, actually. Pretty decent with both yeah. feet. Good leap. Prodigious in the air and all that kind of stuff. Um, mm, it's timing of his runs was so mm, good. Yeah, that is kind of Which awesome. is something you just can't... You know, it's a cliche, but you really can't teach that. Um, even down to, you know, you look at that, the famous Kuman incident when he pulls him back. Even little things like that, even in that huge game he's making... I mean, he would have scored then. Mm. Um, he was just always... No matter the quality of the opposition, he always had an impact. He played pretty well. I watched the West Germany semi-final a few months ago, and he actually played really well in that. Um, not again, not just box to box. There's one lovely pass he plays that takes about four defenders out of the game to Pierce, I think. Um, yeah, just I just he's a very good player. And I said, there's not many English uh, players who've managed to have a total of about 17 million quid spent on them in the 90s no. by three Italian clubs. Is there? You know, it's. Uh, <laughs> let's be honest. And one thing about him. I was convinced in both penalty shootouts that he was going to miss. He gave me the willies all the time. He didn't, but both his penalties weren't great. Um, and people obviously subsequently missed. But yeah, that's about that. So one time I didn't actually, didn't trust him. So I suppose to finish this off then, the question is, is that are we, is he, is he, can he be classed as somebody to go in the underrated Hall of Fame? We've accepted the fact that he probably wasn't underrated given this transfer fees and the way people viewed him at the time, but on reflection, he isn't. Is it, can we class David Platt as an underrated player? I would say so, yeah, because I think he's kind of, he's fallen between two stools. He, he, he sort of seems, in my memory, this just might be me being a confused man, <laughs> but he sort of feels like an 80s player who played most of his career in the 90s if that makes any sense whatsoever it does. It does. it's yeah. kind of yeah. you know it's kind of like the way they say the 60s didn't start until 1963 and they didn't occur anywhere in the country apart from london until yes. the 70s so like the decades are not quite properly aligned and like 90s football for me kind of only really gets going around 96 Yes. When 95, 96, when obviously Euro 96 and, uh, you know, Wenger comes to town basically to, you know, square up with, with Fergie and United and then it becomes a thing. And Platt was sort of of that era before when it was still, it still sort of culturally felt like the same sport and the whole Premier League post-Italian 90 stuff hadn't quite, you know, you course- get, get gathered yeah, he of, course, Steve, really. he, he of course bridged the short shorts, long shorts uh, divide. <laughs> That's the only thing you should remember about him. He did. He started playing in tiny shorts and finished in sort of near the knee shorts, which is, which I suppose yeah. just really is a is a visual demonstration of, of of what we're talking about. Also, at the time, just as an aside, those long shorts. I remember when we got to the stage where they were, you know, they were flowing. Like uh, you know, Princess Diana's dress, yes. um, trailing behind players. But um, <laughs> but at the time, it sort of felt, oh, this is a more tasteful way to go about things. And the short shorts with this sort of egregious, sort of uh, you know, affront you know, yeah. to fashion. They kind of reached to the skinhead, didn't they? They had a kind of skinhead stench. Looking back now, yeah. Actually, looking back, I think the short, the shorter style was was less bad than the incredibly long. <laughs> Late nineties. I've gone off piece here. No, that's Actually, absolutely no, no. Fine. You're right. Adidas last summer brought out a load of originals kits, shirt and shorts of say like Colombia nineteen ninety, Belgium eighty four, Spain ninety four, and I bought the Colombian shorts. 
and they're, they're fantastic. They're so short. Like, I'll never wear them in public. I'll never, wear, I'll never wear them in my own house, but they are brilliant. They are so, so evocative. Speaking as a man who comes from a rugby league background, um, I'm all for the, the large men in the tiniest of tiny shorts. That's uh, <laughs> definitely the way forward for me. Um, so, yeah, so we're going to allow him in. So there you go, Jeremy. It was your nomination. And actually, yeah, we think that David Platt should be added to the underrated Hall of Fame. Journeyman of the week is coming at the end. First of all, though, we are going to now address Liverpool and the perch. So first of all, before we get to the discussion, what on earth is the perch and what the hell are we talking about? Well, it's a quote from a Guardian interview with Michael Walker published on Saturday the 28th of September 2002. It was ahead of Alex Ferguson's 400th Premier League game in charge of United. They were playing Charlton Athletic. Um, going into the game, United are in eighth position on 11 points after seven games and have recently suffered back-to-back defeats to Bolton at home and at Ellen Road to Terry Venables' Leeds United. Roy Keane is out for a long for the long term after a recent hip surgery and his recently published autobiography has proved you know, a bit of a problem. Gary Neville and Paul Scholes are injured as well. The transfer window has just come into force for the first time, so that's, that's slammed shut, so now United can't sign anyone to sort it out. And by contrast, Arsenal are the reigning double winners. They're mowing down everybody in sight. The top of the league with 17 points. I think United are on 11 points in eighth or something. Um, playing brilliantly, talking about going the full season unbeaten. And it was a tele- Telegraph column a few weeks earlier after the two losses in, in his Telegraph column. Alan Hansen had suggested that the situation for Ferguson represented the greatest challenge of his career, is what Hansen said, which cued this response from Ferguson. Ferguson said... My greatest challenge is not what's happening at the moment. My greatest challenge was knocking Liverpool right off their fucking perch, and you can print that. Uh, obviously, I don't do the accent, but that's, I hope I got across the, the correct emotion. So what we're going to talk about now is, did Manchester United knock Liverpool off their perch? So first of all, I suppose, we should, let, should we start by trying to define what, a, what the perch is? Because he never did that, did he? What do we think we mean no. by that? I, I mean, it's, you, you're right. You could argue dominance either purely domestically or also taking Europe. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure he meant just domestically. Mm. Um, that might be a case of hindsight because actually Ferguson never got close to Liverpool's perch in Europe, much as it pains me to say it. Um, but I genuinely think that's what he meant um, because... I mean, by the time he arrived at United, obviously English clubs were banned from Europe. Liverpool still had the great history, but I think he was thinking more about ending their dominance of, um, yeah, the league, essentially. Yeah, I would pretty much agree with that. I mean, I think it's... I always kind of take it to mean as well, it's the team that... Oh, won the most titles. Well, no, that domestically defines an era. And mm. there's only certain number of teams who ever managed to do that. And there's a re well, there are obviously many reasons why Manchester United manager would say that about Liverpool. But there are also reasons why he didn't say it about Everton or Arsenal or Leeds United, who were mm. the champions when United when Manchester United finally, you know, ended their long wait. Um so it was this sort of um you know, there's that one argument that, which I'm sure we'll go on to, had Arsenal already done the job that mm. Fergie's, um, you know, taken the credit for. And in some ways, yes, but I think in other ways, no, because it was Un- Manchester United supplanted Liverpool as English football's 
dominant domestic force. And I think the I think the domestic bit is important, and it's nothing to do with um, you know crowing about Europe or anything like that. It's because I think both clubs, managers of both clubs, have always said this is the this is the bread and butter. Mm. I think I I pick up on that point. I think there's something about um, the perception and how the history book remembers a team that, that feeds into this kind of perch idea. This 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 definite undisputed statement that you're the best team in the land for a period of time, mm. and something mm. about that kind of you can be. There's often what you know. Clough often used the term, didn't he, about an empire wanted to create an empire. At, you know, at Liverpool, mm. and, and I suppose that that Shankly thing about the bastion of invincibility, isn't it? And I so, think, go on, Rob. No, I think you're right. I was going to say. So if we take that as a definition, are we, are we only talking about three perches in history? Arsenal under Chapman, Liverpool, and then United. Are there others? I'll throw that out to Scott as a man who's uh, literally written the book on it. Huh. I mean. Huddersfield is too not it's too short. Well, it, yeah, I, I mean it's you know to define an era. I mean, United you know, like the Busby. I don't know. It's well, because they didn't actually win that many leagues. In, you know, you could make team. a case. You could make a case for Nicholson's Tottenham because although they just won one league mm. title, yes. they they should have mm. won four in a row. I mean, they really managed to to, to spurs that one up to, <laughs> to sort of disinter an old. <laughs> An old trope, but I mean, they were always there, r- racking up huge amount of goals. I think they were the sort of seen at the time as the, as the sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the yardstick. You know, it's a really good point, and you could argue, I suppose, if you take it forward, that you could argue that Chelsea have never done that, despite winning multiple titles, because it's always been under a different manager. The Whereas only thing City, I'll... you could argue, City aren't far away. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I mean, the only thing I would say about Chelsea, because I was mulling this over a wee bit earlier, is um, they kind of have, in so much as that whole Abramovich era oh, yeah, has defined, you know, yeah. it kind of brought the Man- the Manchester United imperial phase to an end eventually, even though United had a, mm. you know, <laughs> three leagues in a row at the end of it. I still kind of weirdly associate that yeah. a little bit more with... Um, with Chelsea, yes. or, or here's the thing that like Manchester United, I I wouldn't think of them being completely dominant in that era, the the the, the late Ferguson era. Mm. Even though they they won three titles in a row, they won the European Cup once, or in two other finals. Mm. I still associate Imperial plays Manchester United yeah, 90s, in the nineties yeah. and early two thousands. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, it's not I just like a tick that. list of yeah trophies yeah, either. No, um, I know exactly. Probably making no sense again, but you know. No, I know what you're saying. Exactly. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, I, know, I do know what you mean. So I suppose, do we accept that there was a perch and that Liverpool were on it? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's been, what, 15, 20 years? Yeah. By, well, not when Ferguson arrived, but by the time it, things started to change around 1990, yeah, I mean, it's hmm. been up there for absolutely ages. Mm. My entire childhood. <laughs> <laughs> So, then this, go on, Scott. Oh, no, sorry, Lee, go on. No, please go on. Last point, well, I was we'll just, move on. <laughs> I was just going to say that it, it sort of depends as well. I mean, we know Liverpool were on their perch, but at what point did they... Well, at what point did the aura start going? And I, I think it started slipping um, when Sunus left, and was, which is a bit earlier than 
most people might. So what year was that? that? Remind everybody. So that would be like. 84 it would oh, be as the a end. player sorry yeah as a as a sorry oh, yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah I've, I've, I've put that other stuff out of mind that's a that's a freudian uh slip right there um yeah when soonest left as a as a player in 84 and the team were never quite as dominant i know they had that one great season in 88 but that was almost like the, you know, the last kind of what I was saying about hmm. Manchester United a couple of minutes ago, that seemed to be like the last, the last hurrah of like a sort of crumbling regime. So there's the other thing, not that it necessarily matters, like you say, it's not a tick list, but after soon as left, they never retained the league today. So there was never that sense no. of that, that no. level of dominance they had in the past. When soon as left have won, what, three in a row and yeah. just won the European Cup. I mean, I know it's not too pure, but I, I, I do know what you mean because 84-5, they were, relatively poor and yeah. although it came back yeah 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 you're right eight seven eight obviously a great side but didn't didn't last as long as it might i mean been. everton really should have won the double in 86 yeah um you know and then of course there are you know other more serious reasons as to why mm. it started going wrong for, for yeah. liverpool but i i think it's also important to sort of note that it never felt like it was um that this is going to go on forever. Mm. Whereas I imagine if you were a Liverpool fan in 1979, um, you know, having just won a couple of European Cups and then winning the league after letting in about three goals all season or something, <laughs> then you would think, right, this is going to go on forever. Because, they'd, you know, even Shankly leaving hadn't sort of knocked them off course. Mm. But it just, I think when Sunus left... And I think United gave the league a good go that season in '84, didn't they? Oh, they completely made a bollocks of it. That's the <laughs> um, that's the real one that got away under Ackerton. Everyone talks about '85, '86 when they won ten in a row, but actually they faded long before the end. '83-4, they went top with ten games to go, just beaten Barcelona three 0 Arsenal four 0 and it was something like the last ten games they got something like two wins, five draws, three defeats, something like that. The weird thing is Liverpool actually had a similarly bad run, but they'd just gone ahead. Mm. And then they they matched each other, drop points for drop points. Um, so yeah, they, yeah, they did. They could easily have won it that year. So they were on a perch, and they definitely came off it. I suppose what we need to look at is is that you know Fergie's desire was to be the one. You know, took it quite personally to knock them off the fucking perch. Mm. Um, <laughs> the interesting thing before we go on to that, the interesting thing is is that obviously Ferguson, you know, is a man from Glasgow mm. who managed Aberdeen. And apparently when he was at Aberdeen, there's lots of reports. I mean, Mark, is it Mark McGee said at Aberdeen, he was very big on the us versus them thing and yeah. the West of Scotland bastards and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so he's kind of parachuted into United in 86, yeah? Yes. Um, and then did, takes it personally upon himself to knock Liverpool off their perch. And yet personally, as a person where he came from, he wouldn't have much invested in that, would he? And yet he wore, he put the coat on. You know, isn't and just, the trousers immediately, didn't he? Isn't it just that he loves that challenge? Like he had Rangers and Celtic. Um, it's that, that that he thrived on. The other thing to consider, and Scott knows a bit more about this game than me, is that Liverpool battered Aberdeen in the European mm. Cup. Um, oh, I right, think it was 5-0 okay. five, five on aggregate. And I don't know to what extent that um, made him... Yeah. Fuming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was a proper... Yeah. It was a proper 5-0. It wasn't just, you know... 
they were, you know, they were a class apart at that point. And then, of course, the other thing um, is would have been the um, the stuff with the '86 Scotland World Cup squad, oh, um, yes. which Ferguson had taken uh, caretaker control of after mm-hmm. Jock Steen passed away, and he decided not to pick Hansen. Yes, and Dalgleish went, okay, well, that being the case, I'm downing tools as well. Um, he didn't, you know, claimed he was injured, but we, I think everyone, even at the time, knew what was what was going on, and and that was a bit of a. I think that you know that had driven a wedge between them pretty much right. before before he taking the United job. But then, of course, it's Ferguson's nature to, you know, um, he needs an play up, yeah, and to play up that rivalry, and you know, he did it in a way. I mean that's one thing that one of the that none of the post Ferguson managers have really bothered with um, Old Trafford is stoking things up unnecessarily against Liverpool. Mm. <laughs> Not that it really needs to be whipped, bring back whipped stoking up. up things unnecessarily. That's what I say. Yeah. Yeah, but um, you know it's it's um, different approaches, I guess. And, and there was that game in '88, which the three all draw when um, Colin Gibson was sent off. I think that kind of tipped him over the edge a bit when. He said that what was it? Teams leave Anfield choking on the vomit, and then that Kelly Dalglish had his daughter. I think it was Kelly with him, and he said to him, like, "Talk to her. You'll get more sense out of her than you will Ferguson." She was about two years old, I think. Um, yeah, that was a really that was a game when Norman Whiteside booted everyone around Anfield, but weirdly, Colin Gibson was sent off, and so I don't know. But anyway, and I think that kind of pushed it to another level. Then, yeah, and just. I think it's like it comes. There's a great line in Sopranos when Johnny Sachs says, um, "The Sopranos always need someone to demonise." And I think it's like Ferguson was a bit like that. He just he did need it. He loved raging against anything and everything. It just <laughs> it made him more powerful. You know, a lot, a lot of people I think can do that short term, but eventually it wears them down. Whereas Ferguson, it just seems to be able to do it forever and find draw strength from it. How do you find the emotional energy? What he did. Um, I'll do our usual. We always have one point in every episode where we say, can you imagine what it would have been like if Twitter was around then? <laughs> if he'd done this interview in a social media age, it would be staggering, wouldn't it? We'll leave it there. So let's look at then. So they get knocked off the perch. That's what he wanted to happen. I suppose that what we've got is, is the options are really, I suppose, did United do it? Did Arsenal do it? Did Liverpool do it? As you alluded to a minute ago, Scott, were other things that were going on at Liverpool far more serious things? the inevitable consequences of that were that it would happen or is it simply that empires come to an end, I suppose. So let's, let's have a look at this. So, so was it Man United that did it? What's kind of Ferguson's case that he did? Can he look back on his career and said, yes, I did it. Um, well, Oh, so, oh, no, sorry, sorry, go on. I no, it's fine. I was just going to say, yeah, go on. Go on, I'll pick it up. Well, I, I suppose, like, if I, I actually, I doubt this was his consideration at the time, but one thing that's often used is the fact United uh, went past 18 titles um, now, I don't think Ferguson would have had that in mind, but that's sometimes used as exhibit A and the fact that he knocked them off the perch. I mean, my, my feeling has always been more that they were knocked off by a combination of, you know, um, Arsenal, the effect of Hillsborough, the effect of Sunus. And it's more that Ferguson took out an injunction that they couldn't go within five miles of it for the next 25 years. So he kept them away from it. He didn't knock them off, but he kept them from going anywhere near it ever again. That would be my take on it. What at what period after Ferguson have United started winning? At well, what, what period? What was the first period 
from sort of 92 onwards where you could say, well, actually now, undoubtedly United are the best team in the land? I think it was when they won the second league. So first, you never know. It, uh, the other thing is, it wasn't just that Liverpool weren't winning leagues. They fell pretty quickly and pretty dramatically. Mm. Like 91, they finished second. Nine, and then 92 and 93, they finished, what, seventh or eighth or something? Um, so it all happened really quickly. Um, probably reasonably unrelated, you know. United and Liverpool didn't have a title challenge together um, under Ferguson until long after soon as it had gone, until Roy Evans was there. United finished second in 88, but they were, it was never a race because Liverpool was so good. Um, so, yeah, I actually think there's a there's a quite an important game that doesn't get talked about much, which is um, a League Cup game in 1990, so Dalglish's last season. And it's probably, you could argue, the last time under Ferguson where they took on Liverpool when Liverpool were unquestionably the superior team. And Liverpool had smashed them 4 in on the league about six weeks earlier. League Cup was quite big back then. Um, and United, abs- Liverpool, I think, had won their first nine league games or something like that. And United slaughtered them. It was 3-1, but it could have been a lot more. Um, and that, that felt quite significant, I think, because it was the first... Ferguson had had good results against Liverpool, but that was the first time United absolutely tore them apart. Um and if and looking back now, you can see two teams who are going in different directions. You know, Dalglish went a few months later. Obviously, there were a lot of reasons for that. Um, and by the time they next met, um, certainly the following season, you could make a case. I mean, Liverpool were falling, United were on the rise. So I don't know. I feel like that game was actually quite an important um, uh, landmark. Hmm. Yeah, that. Yeah, I vaguely remember that. That's another one in my locker, <laughs> along with soon as the manager. Um, well, I mean, there's also the thing, I think there was this sense that Liverpool as a club had just suddenly become, you know, the world had, had overtaken them and they were left mm. behind. Like Manchester United had had sort of, you know, there was that famous quote that um, uh, Peter Robinson uh, the chief executive through Liverpool's um, perch sitting years um, <laughs> said, you know, I really fear when that lot down the road get there, refer yeah. to Manchester United, uh, you know, when they get th- their act together, uh, it's trouble for us. And of course they, spe- you know, never did get their act together and never did, never did. And then suddenly it's beginning to happen. And, and with United finally, you know, getting their act together under a really great manager, getting a great squad of players together. Liverpool's also had this, you know, their, well, okay, so we'll set aside the things like Hillsborough and Dalglish mm. resigning. Um, obviously a huge, huge, huge factor. Um, but as well as that, you've got United getting better. You've got Arsenal <clears throat> chipping away at their sort of invincibility, um, you know, creating seeds of doubt. Uh, you know, the Michael Thomas goal um, mm. really altered the way Liverpool thought about football matches. So there's a, there's all these things happening, you know, self-doubt. Everyone else is getting tooled up and getting better. Um, you've suffered this horrible um, tragedy. Um, and the business side of things they're you know they're still operating out of a biscuit tin where like united have become um you know they've sensed the way the wind's blowing with the premier league so yeah. it's like it was kind of this sort of perfect storm for for knocking them off their perch. a couple, a couple but, of other but i think united were the biggest factor don't get me wrong 
Yeah, we should, Crystal Palace were another fact. I, I that was such a seismic uh, game, the FA Cup semi final in nineteen ninety. Yeah. I just thought of another couple of things that fueled Ferguson's ire involving Liverpool bench, and I forgot actually there was another game United smashed Liverpool. It was New Year's Day eighty nine. Yep. And they beat them 3-1, and it could have been more. And it was before Liverpool, funny enough, then were unbeaten until the Michael Thomas game. Mm. But at the end of the game, Ferguson shook hands with Ronnie Moran, and Moran just gruffly said the best team lost. And apparently Ferguson was absolutely fuming about this, um, because United <laughs> have really smashed them. And the other thing is, when Liverpool, of course, helped cost United the league in 92, and they beat them 2-0, and it clinched it for Leeds. Um, he didn't say it was, but Ferguson said there was a member of Liverpool's backroom staff who was just shouting, fuck, fuck you at him. Um, and I think that just added his, <laughs> added his determination to... Uh, well, yeah. it would do, wouldn't it, I guess. I wonder as well, that that game, and that's the you know where there was a famous banner, which I can't remember the oh, exact word. It said, come yeah. back when you won 18 yeah. or whatever. Um, I, I, I don't know whether you'd get a lot of Liverpool fans of the time to admit this, but it was the sense that it was delaying the inevitable and that, you know, celebrate while the going's good because the chance, the chances are United are going to come back next year, you know, come again stronger and better. And that's what they, and that's what they eventually did. And it's weird that you were saying, Rob, that as a Manchester United fan, you Still weren't sure there was a new era until the second title in the double year. Well, no, I think, but, but, oh, I, but watching as an outsider, it was just, oh my God, these guys are going to, you know, they're going to be bossing it for the next few years at least. I think there were big worries after the, they, they lost it to Leeds because they fell away so badly. And there were mitigating circumstances, injuries, the pitch, four games in seven days, but they also bottled it. There's no doubt about that. Um, and then they signed Dion Dublin from Cambridge. You know, you think, geez, yeah. Mm. <laughs> so I think there were worries. I mean, November, everyone knows the story about they were could hardly score a goal until Cantona signed and it all changed from then. I think after they won the first one, I felt confident. But I think the second one was when it became something more kind of um, significant. Yeah. yeah, I think so. You mentioned Arsenal there. So it's one of the picking Arsenal's role in, in, in the, you know, de-perching of Liverpool, if you like. Um <laughs> So under George Graham, they had two league titles, two league cups, an FA Cup and a cup winners' cup between '87 and '94. If you to compare that with United's first dominant period that you've just been discussing, mm. how does it compare? Do do we think is it is it is it comparable? The only thing I the only reason I can't see it as being comparable, of course, is that Liverpool were still winning titles in that period, albeit only up until 1990. So it wasn't a bit because Liverpool obviously haven't won a title since United started winning titles again. So there is something yes. about how Arsenal's, for me, Arsenal's kind of role in it probably showed the, I don't know, kind of turned the, turned the mirror on the slightly creaking edifice of Liverpool before the, we're always putting Hillsborough aside on this, I mean, before that, mm. um, because of the, you know, did appointments in the boot room go on a bit too long? Your point exactly mm. is a good one, Scott, I think, for me, in terms of they stopped, they weren't looking outwards soon enough. The, but the funny thing is, the, the person who was trying to look outwards soonest was the one who ended up bringing the house down in a way because there was so much resistance <laughs> to his ideas. And that's the impression I got anyway. I read Simon Hughes's book on the 90s, which is really good. Mm, um, and the impression is, yeah. you get is that actually soonest was, was doing things that are completely normal now, um, but that people just weren't. There was that boot room culture and so on. Um, um, but yeah, I think, well, I think the first Arsenal title was obviously one of the great football stories, the greatest title whenever. But it actually, in a stupid way, Liverpool actually 
were lucky to get that close because they'd been miles behind, hadn't they? Then they went on that crazy run to reel Arsenal in. Whereas the second one felt more significant because of the way Arsenal beat them home and away, um, really emphatically in both games. I think, um, was, there a, was there a game at Christmas, just before Christmas at Highbury in yeah, that second season? Yeah, and Paul Mercer fullbacks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And what that, funny enough, United have beaten Arsenal 6-2 a few days earlier in the League Cup. So, but then Liverpool went there and played four fullbacks. It was really weird. And Arsenal smashed them 3-0. Um, and then they beat them fairly comfortably at Anfield 1-0, or at least that's how I remember it. And then it just, it felt, I don't know, it felt more significant. I think it didn't, it didn't feel like just that Liverpool hadn't won the league. It actually felt that they'd shown, because even in 88-89, I didn't feel that way, really. Um, it just felt like they'd almost had half a season off and almost made it up by being absolutely amazing after Christmas. Mm. Um, whereas 1991, obviously with Dalglish leaving, some strange signings, some good, really great players retiring or getting old, uh, it felt like things were changing. I, I, at that point, I had no idea United would take over because they were a cup team at that point. Um, and it probably looked like Arsenal would. But um, yeah, it certainly felt like Liverpool were more vulnerable, to, to me anyway. Where, so in terms of from Arsenal's point of view, good team, but obviously they had no top three finish after 1990-91 until Wenger came along and kind of, as I suppose, changed the English football, I suppose. Um, well, when uh, did, uh, when did United... Fl- Sorry, Scott, go on. No, I was just going to say, I think they get written out the story a little bit because okay. that they, they sort of... Um, uh, that team kind of burnt so brightly so quickly. It had that two titles in, in three years. And then they didn't do it, although they started hoovering up cups for a bit. It was like the football wasn't as good. They weren't really involved in the conversation in the in the league at any point. So, and, you know, and then you had this one-off story of Leeds. Um, it just felt like it was this little sort of fallow period um, before the Premier League started. It's like the sort of the Liverpool perch year's end. <laughs> and then there's just like a little bit of warming up. Put everyone putting their house in order and going again with the Premier League, which I I know it seems obvious because it was a, a whole new ball game, but <laughs> it, it, it did. It, it it's easy now to sort of underestimate or underplay how how momentous this whole thing felt. Mm. This is really different. It's like this thing that had lasted for over a hundred years was now this new Premier League. And it felt brasher and bigger. Um, and so I think maybe, yeah, that Arsenal-Leeds bit, it kind of gets gets squirreled away a bit. And then, of course, United were the team prepared to sort of seize the day, wasn't it? And again, kind of a reverse of the Liverpool thing. It's interesting that Arsenal's 89 title is so much more celebrated than 91, which is completely understandable because of the circumstances. But that 91 team was so much more convincing. I mean, funnily enough, the 89 team almost bottled it and then won it by accident because they got so far behind, you know, having to go to Anfield to win by two and everyone thought no chance. Whereas 91, they were just immense. They lost one game. And even that was only because I think Steve Bold was injured at Chelsea, which didn't help. Yeah, and no, the captain in prison for half the year yeah. as well. It, yeah, and they lost it was an, two It was an amazing title. Win. Got two points as well. And yeah. the thing is, we now look at it and say lose one game, it's not that much. But actually, in those days, that was ridiculous achievement. Because even Liverpool would usually lose, what, four or five? Apart from their real freak seasons, like 78-9 and 87-8, they would usually lose a few. Um, mm. So to lose only one game was just crazy, really. The whole thing about Liverpool de-perching themselves is interesting, because... They obviously had stopped winning in 1990. Well, they won the FA Cup in 92. 
Yeah, but by then they'd already finished low in the league, but it didn't feel like it was a start really. Yeah, I, that I that, that Sunderland bit... team wasn't up to much, was it? Let's be honest. It, it was a bit no. <laughs> Compa- a bit combines John Byrne and Peter Davenport up front and aggregate, aggregate age of about 128 between <laughs> them, basically. There was a bit of enthusiasm around McManaman and Mike Marsh and stuff, but I don't think I don't think they ever really th- felt like something was happening until Roy Evans started to get his team together. But I suppose. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. That, that thing about something happening because you made a point before, Scott, about nobody thought it would last this long. You know, this, 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 this issue. So, I suppose my question is: is that from a kind of are you still on that perch thing? Did people still believe in ninety one, ninety two that this was just a little bit of an aberration? It'd soon sort itself out, and they'd get back to you know whatever you might term their rightful position might be. Yeah, maybe. I mean, as I remember it, um, it. Um, it it did unravel quite quickly, um, and suddenly you thought, "Hold on, this—it's not just a case of having to sign. You know, make a couple of bad signings, okay, set them to one side, make two more good signings, and you're back again." It wasn't that. It was like the team had completely, the perch team, all, yeah. all, all gone. Well, that's um, the other thing. You'll all be talking about this in work tomorrow, won't you? They'll all be talking about this in work tomorrow. It was allowed to grow old, wasn't it? Yeah, which is often levelled against Dalgleish. And then you know a couple of um, a couple of poor signings here and there, but then you know for a season you sort of think, well, you know that's it is. There's no reason why it couldn't be a blip, but it became quickly apparent um, that it it was, you know, and then they uh, or it wasn't, and they you know start going four 0 down at home to who was it in the League Cup? Was it four 0 down? They certainly drew four all with Chesterfield, and um, and you're just sort of thinking, hold on, this is uh, this is a bit sort of trippy. This is this doesn't really happen. The game um, that I remember thinking, Jesus, was when they got walloped by Coventry just before Christmas, the first Premier League season. I think it was five one. Oh yeah, Queen yeah. Got, got a few, and I remember thinking, like bloody hell, that really doesn't happen. But but weirdly, Coventry always used to. Yeah, it's true. Actually, in, um, even when you were great at beat in the eighties, you know, Nicky Platinow and all that. Yeah. Um, Leicester City had a bit of a hoodoo over Liverpool for a little while as well, didn't they? they used to get decent results. If I remember right. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that stretches back to the sixties. <laughs> Leicester. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are small little things that influence it as well because um, as soon as his first full season, John Barnes hardly played, did he? Mm. He got a bad injury, and Barnes yeah. had been the best player in England domestically for three or four years it's an awesome player and you wonder if he has a full season how much does that influence how much does he drag the team along and he was never the know. same again after yeah so yeah i mean again though it's a bit like taylor's right you kind of when you find a point of sympathy for them you then come back to the fact yeah but he dropped peter beardsley you think like why would i why would you do that yeah um, see john barnes got worse when shorts got longer and i'm not having that that's a coincidence <laughs> so yes uh, so this shorts thing just got to run and run isn't it um, we've we've talked about Leeds, so I suppose the, the reason why I started that question is at what point did Liverpool, I suppose, stop being that dominant force? I don't think it was in 1990, was it, when they stopped? In terms of the, if we're saying the perch is not just winning, but it's the perception of what you are, I don't yeah. think Liverpool were the perception of what they were, what they are or were, has faded until I don't know. What do you think? 93, 92? But it, but it did go quickly because I'm I'm even thinking now. The, so they won the cup in '92, mm-hmm. which was kind of just, you know, kept things ticking along. Okay, they'd had a bad season in the league, but this had happened before. I mean, it happened in 
1981, they finished fifth when Aston Villa won. Um, but, but although they did win the European Cup that year, <laughs> which kind of mitigated it a bit. Um, but, he says but, a lot about uh, Liverpool. He goes, yeah, they finished fifth. Oh, yeah, on the European Cup. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, but, but then, you know, they they had this bad season in the league, but you won the FA Cup. You think, well, you know, could, could go all right. And then they got completely turned over by Nottingham Forest on the first day of the Premier League. And you're sort of thinking, oh, well, this isn't going to go quite as, you know, the, the, the momentum was very quickly um, given up. Yeah, because it's interesting about how how cup wins can either be indicative of something or not. Because obviously, when people look back now, there's a lot made of United's cup wins in, in, in 1990, 1991, and about how they are portentous of what is to come. You know, they demonstrate a building side. Whereas yeah. interestingly, Liverpool won a cup in 92, and yet it goes, yeah, it was just the kind of thing, but you could still see the general... It's interesting to see how the perception of cup wins, I suppose. History is yeah. written by the victors, I suppose. Like, <laughs> yeah, you look that, yeah. Funnily yeah. enough, there is a great thing on the, the day of the Palace final in 1990. Dennis Law's in the BBC studio, and he there's quite it's on YouTube, and he says something like, "You know, if they win today, this could be the start of a decade of dominance." Um, now I'm sure he was just flinging out a cliche for the sake of it, but it's quite nice to look at in hindsight. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and people often say, oh, "Well, what if Liverpool hadn't sort of..." shat the bed against Palace and, and mm. got to the cup final. Um, and you would think on one level, you know, they were still probably a better side than Manchester United at that point, even though they were, <laughs> they were even though they were on their way down. But I think they'd have lost that cup final because it's, you know, we're back to the point that United kept winning the big games against them all, all the way through the 80s. Not, to, not so much though towards the end. You think that season... Liverpool have won at Old Trafford. I don't know. Personally, I think Liverpool was so much better than United at that point. United were almost relegated that year or for a time that yeah, they yeah. might be. I personally think if you move forward a year, I think by then United were ready certainly to take Liverpool on in big games more. Um, I don't know. I, I think there would have been... And you look how nervous United were against Palace as well. And I know Palace beat Liverpool, but I don't know. I, I feel like that Liverpool would have been huge favourites for that game. Possibly. I'm, I'm, I've just never been convinced that was the... Um, I mean, it, it is an obvious sort of what-if sliding doors thing. Mm. But uh, I, I don't know, I just wouldn't have trusted that Liverpool side to to do the job somehow. Mm. For some reason, they've never been very good at sort of putting... Or maybe this is like a post-Michael uh, Thomas thing. Liverpool have never been good at sort of... When they've got the opposition beaten... They don't keep them there. They're very good at letting them away back out, mm-hmm. and um, and I wonder whether that's all sort of back. You can tra- you you track all this back to this sliding door moment. I'm talking nonsense. We've deliberately <laughs> we've deliberately um... what people pay for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, sorry about that, everyone. Old Patreon. We've uh, we've subscribers. we've deliberately not talked about Hillsborough because I don't think we're the correct vehicle to do it. But I I I would just I think yeah. we have to mention it in that I suppose just generally, can any institution, football club or not, ever really recover from the kind of moral and emotional and I think and the physical shock Scott will know more that, so that, from that, afar that, that does to a to a to a you know an organization. 
And Scott, Scott is much more qualified to talk about this. But from afar, it just feels like the impact, the emotional impact on Dalgleish, which was obvious by the time he quit, and um, and then the impact him resigning because he was a very, very good manager, particularly around that point. Um, and all right, there were signs that he had his judgment had started to go a bit with signs like Jimmy Carter. But again, that's all tied in with the emotional exhaustion. Um, in terms of the club, I don't know. Scott probably have a more know more about that. Well, yeah, I mean, you, the weird thing about the Dalgleish um, sort of beginning to lose his way after Hillsborough, and then, of course, what's often forgotten, not always forgotten, but the fact is it was within a couple of years he was building something at Blackburn Rovers. Yeah. In fact, it was even less than a couple of years, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. He just The man needed some time off. Yeah. So on that like, personal level, um, I mean, that was obviously the biggest mistake, and they'd have... Uh, I think it's on on record in various places now that if he'd have, if someone had said that to him, you can yeah. go away and your job's still going to be here in six months, twelve months, that would have fixed everything. But they they sort of decided to do the Shankly Paisley, um, you know, banishing the old manager mm. thing. And you can you know, I mean, it was the wrong decision. You can sort of see the logic in it, given it worked in the you know in the mid seventies. And then, I mean, I mean, the other the other thing about Hillsborough that I always find slightly strange is the way that it's it's kind of written out of the Arsenal Michael Thomas title story, as if it as if there was no real connection between one of mm. one thing and the other, and there clearly was. And I know, and I think one of the great things, I mean, literally, because I mean, Dudley was going to funerals, wasn't he? Yeah. And you know, um, of, of course, it was a a, a big effect. It, it, just in that particular context, and I think it would be terribly sad if you, you know. It's good that we can separate them because mm. Arsenal can celebrate their achievements, yes. and and I don't think anyone connected with Liverpool from Dalgleish down ever used it as a as an excuse and always congratulated Arsenal. Um, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't a thing. Mm. So you know, yeah, and you're right. It's we're not the right people to talk about this, but no. um, but it's just to make just we can't. We, it'd be daft not to mention not, it at all. Yeah. Um. So we've just spent probably about thirty-five minutes talking about this. I suppose the question really should come up now: is has too much been made of the comment? Well, it certainly has by us, but just generally, is it really just Fergie? You know, trying to trying to have a bit of a pop at Alan Hampton because he doesn't like him. <laughs> that's a really tricky one. I mean, I, I would agree with Ferguson that it was a bigger challenge. Whether he actually did it or whether it actually that things coincided is a different point. But I think it was. You know, the cha- I mean, the challenge of knocking your cloth punch or whatever. They were just an aw- awesome team and have been for ages. Arsenal were brilliant in 2002 and everyone thought, you know, Ferguson was finished and all that. Everyone's writing that. Um, so I think he was right in that sense. Whether he knocked them off, it's all, it's almost irrelevant. I think what you say about ears is quite important. Um, so basically, however they got off the perch, Ferguson was on there doing a little <laughs> silly dance for the next <laughs> 15 years or so. With a pint of each hand. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, because I mean, if you, if you look at like we mentioned, pe- clubs that had eras before, short or long. I mean, Liverpool were, I suppose, conspicuous because it was what fifteen years. 
even longer, wasn't it? When was the first UEFA Cup? 73. Yeah. He's cracking on for that, isn't he? And I suppose you can say Forrest had their moment, but it was, what, three or four years max. But even then, you know, these things kind of come to an end through a combination of poor signings and tactics moving on and you're not really keeping up with it. You know, loyalty to other players, all of that kind of stuff. I think if you, you, it was inevitable, that I suppose, when you look at it, that would happen with Liverpool. Then you add something as seismic as Hillsborough. Then you add... Um, that the Premier League comes along, like you mentioned, Scott, and changes everything. When did clubs float on the stock exchange? Was that the late 80s? Mm. Yeah. yeah, United was 91, I think. So, you know, Spurs, United... Spurs, Spurs, Spurs were mid-80s, weren't they? Yeah, Sorry. yeah that's yeah. right. But, you know, that that's kind of in 91. I don't, well, I don't know when Liverpool did it. I've got, a, I've got a feeling it was after United. Sorry. But, um, you know, there's something well, about... that. Is that another indication that of what Scott said before, that United were just moving forward in this more modern world without a boot room and you know and so on possibly yeah. so much which just comes down to the genius of ferguson doesn't it i don't i don't know <laughs> you know yeah. that much more advanced as a club than liverpool but ferguson was um it's just just him isn't it yeah a, there you a go sick genius and i mean i i wonder as well whether he shouldn't i mean he's quite within his rights to take credit for knocking Liverpool off their perch. But I wonder whether the real job was when they briefly threatened to get back up in under Roy Evans, mm. the 96 Cup final, the 97 mm. title race. Yeah, 96 um, Cup final was really important. It was Ferguson both times. That, you know, there was that 3-1 at Anfield with David James sat down grinning, as he always did, when he just <laughs> dropped, dropped one into his own net. Um <laughs> I had to watch yeah. the uh, highlights of Oldham versus Liverpool from ninety three, ninety from ninety two, ninety three um, the other week before we did this. I went back and watched it. David James has a magnificent game, a magnificent David James game against Oldham where he throws the ball into the ground. And I thought of you immediately because he did sit there with that ridiculous <laughs> fucking smile on his face, yeah. <laughs> with his with his his elbows on his knees. You know, it was, <laughs> I think Ferguson's relationship with Liverpool in the Premier League years is quite interesting because first five years of the Premier League, you could argue Liverpool were a better team in the game at Old Trafford, but they didn't win any of them. So he did, United did establish a strange kind of hold over them, even though Liverpool again had their moments, you know, they helped deny United the league. But Ferguson feared them a lot. They were the one team probably that he made tactical concessions for um, in that league. He didn't do it against Newcastle or Blackburn or anyone else. Um, so I think he did respect them a lot, uh, but obviously he wanted to keep them at a certain level, and and you know he he achieved that in some in spectacular style, really. Yeah, because I think it was it was ninety six that cup final as well. We mm. just talked about you know the sort of lost United v Liverpool cup final of nineteen ninety. Yeah, and, um, going into ninety six, it's like United are hot favourites to win this. It was a lot. There was a lot of talk about actually. Liverpool, but it was you know they were much the better side. I don't know about that, because I think a lot of people fancied Liverpool because they just played such eye-catching football. Whereas United had actually... That I remember season, most people thinking it was going to be a Liverpool win that day. United, really? I think I United have been reasonably... Dow's not quite the right word. But and the funny thing is, in that game, Ferguson changed fan again. He put Keane a lot deeper. Um, and Keane, that was the game when Keane actually, I think, kind of went, took a shortcut to greatness because he was just... Made. There's a great clip where he basically... Liverpool over the ball just outside the United area. 
and he chases someone to pass it, and he basically chases them all the way back to David James. It's ludicrous. <laughs> okay, so I don't know if we've come to a conclusion there, but ultimately it was a, it was a number of things, but probably in terms of where there was a moment to be seized, Alex Ferguson and his ability was right there to seize it, I suppose. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed that. I suppose the last thing to pick up on this one is, 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 is somebody on the perch now? Is it City? Have City now knocked United off the perch that they dominated think, for a while? Well, again, you could argue United fell off it in a heap after Ferguson retired. It's funny that United <laughs> can re- repeat so many of the errors of Liverpool in terms of being um, slow to modernise and so on, the state of Old Trafford. And I think if City, certainly if they win this year, the league, three in a row, with the same manager. I mean, um, Scott does make a good point about Mourinho, actually. Um, that was the first time when it felt like something might change. And even though United came back to win three leagues, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think that's quite a tough one. Mourinho's interesting because also it changed the, the nature of football, obviously changed through Chelsea, and they represent that. Um, I think as so, well, yeah, once I know, it's quite complicated. I think, you know, once you're on, on the perch, so when United were unquestionably on the perch between say 94 and 2004 when but even though Mourinho um you know came at them won a couple of titles United could still sort of have that trump card of like you know well you have to you have to actually beat you know if you come at the king you've got to kill the king and they've never done that and it was only when Ferguson left that United you know United you know, you can claim ownership of the perch right up can, until 2013 or whenever. At can least, you have, can you have more than one team on the perch? Thinking the United Arsenal, the Wenger years, because yeah. I, in my in my head now, I associate them together. Um, but then again, Arsenal never retained the league, which you you feel like that's quite a big kind of requirement. I don't know. I'm just making it up. Well, would you have Everton on Liverpool's no, perch? At the no, no, you're right. See, and I think it's the same thing. But think, the only difference would be... And United get special privileges. Yeah. Done before. The, only, the only difference would be is that when Arsenal were winning leagues and because of, obviously, what Wenger brought to English football, it was perceived as a, a shift in power and a change in football. It didn't quite manifest itself as that, but I think it was rather never just being better at Liverpool at a relatively similar kind of style of play and everything. There was a kind of point of difference to Arsenal. Um, but maybe, maybe the fact they didn't retain it. Is, is a big black mark. Right. The perch chat is over. Oh, come on. But obviously all of you hours. listening out there now <laughs> can go forward and, and have long debates about whether the perch is a load of bollocks, and if it isn't, which we don't think it is, we, we think it's not a load of bollocks, then you I can know, decide he's going to be on it or not. One last thing. I don't really mention it really quickly, but I think that Palace semi-final was a huge moment in football. But just to see the extent... It's not, again, not Liverpool lost, not lost 4-3, just to see him looking so ragged having beaten Palace 9-0 earlier in the season and they were one up at half-time and they were absolutely cruising. Um, and although they went on to win the league, that did feel slightly kind of, I don't know. I get Maybe maybe, you, maybe it's easy to do that with hindsight now. You only see it at the time rather than seeing it as a one-off shock. But it feels that feels like a huge moment. Um, oh, actually, and just one other thing that you've now reminded me of would be who Liverpool knocked off the perch to get on the perch in the first place, back in the seventies, and it's got to be—it has to be Leeds United. Mm. Yeah, I suppose so. Even though they didn't win that many leagues, even they didn't win a load of stuff, but they were in the mix every single year, and it yeah. was like they were the team to beat in the mid-sixties to 
So you see the perch. Yeah. <laughs> you could have leads on the perch in between 65 and 75 maybe scott murray's well, book the the history of the perch will be being published <laughs> in early 2021 anyway yeah okay uh right then so that's the end of that we're going to finish off this week with a little bit we're bringing back the journeyman of the week uh it's a relatively topical one in some ways because the journeyman of the week is francisco Hernandi lima da silva better known as mirandinha um, Newcastle have broken their record to sign a Brazilian recently, and I'm so out of touch that I can't remember what his name is, but they've signed a Brazilian footballer recently. Joe Linton. There you go, thank you. And so, therefore, we're going to talk about the first Brazilian to ever play in the English League, which was Francisco Andy Lima da Silva, known as Mirandinha. Arrived in Newcastle in 1987... And various reports that what I like about Mirandinha in a way, we'll go through his kind of history in a bit, is it's hard to find out exactly what is true and what isn't in that kind of wonderful mystic time back there. Because he was reported to have scored three hundred goals in Brazil prior to yeah, we know about Brazilian fucking exactly. Carlos, Carlos <laughs> Kaiser scored three hundred goals in Brazil. Yes. Is that just a, is that just like a de facto number they write on everything? Scored no, three hundred you know goals. Thing about, like, Pele's thousand goals, including a couple that he dreamt about and stuff, and Romario's, however many he scored, they will include like friendlies and and those tours yeah. that that Santos used to go on, where he scored fifteen <laughs> yeah. goals against Sligo Rovers and stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah. Anyway, Mirandini between nineteen seventy seven and eighty seven, he played for Ferro Viaro, Ponte Preta, Palmeiras, Botafogo, Nautico, Portuguesa. And a return to Palmeiras. One Times report suggested he scored 70 times for Palmeiras in 86-87, which is the year before he came to United. Newcastle United, that is. Which prompted his promotion to the Brazil squad. He played for Brazil four times in 1987. They were his only caps. Making his debut in the Rouse Cup against England. Oh, I missed the Rouse Cup. Mm. Um, he scored Brazil's goal in the 1-1 draw as man of the match. He then played against the Republic and Scotland. They were obviously on a bit of a tour. Went to the 87 Copper America, but didn't play. Apparently, I didn't know this, the key to his transfer to England was Malcolm McDonald because Malcolm McDonald had set up a sort of um, agency to bring players to England and a friend of McDonald's had told him about this kind of super scoring sensation in Brazil. I do like the idea of uh, Malcolm McDonald being the first kind of dodgy, or one <laughs> of the first dodgy foreigner weird ownership deal type agents. How the hell would you scout a player from Brazil in those days? Apart from like seeing him at Wembley. How do they? How would people? I don't know how they would do it. Maybe they just took his word for it. I reckon it was a probably just a. I know somebody who I don't know lives yeah. in Brazil or something. You know, simple as that, really. I suppose also, and then the fact that first Brazilian, and you could just say Brazil, and it was completely magical, couldn't you? Yeah, so I do you think there's that um, the championship manager anyway. thing where you have a choice between signing John Porter and Ernesto Lima da Silva. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You go, I'll go for the Ernesto one, and that the only thing that pulls you that way is that the name sounds like it might be better. Yeah. I have a feeling there was a bit of that in, in the 80s. Um, they signed him for Palmeiras for 575,000 in 1987. He actually came in to replace Peter Beardsley, who'd just gone to join Liverpool in 1987, as, as uh, Scott will know very well. And he became the first Brazilian to play in England. He transferred around the same time as the 87 Football League centenary game. That was in 87. And the Football League were desperately fighting against the idea that this lovely 100-year-old game was just nothing but a haven for scumbags who like to knock shit out of each other, basically. Um, so they, they wanted a bit of nicer... So it was a bit of a boom to sign a Brazilian player, as you said, Rob, because of the magic that comes with it. And 
that was the year they played that game and they had to pay £100,000 for Maradona to play in that centenary game. Unbelievable. Oh, Diego, he couldn't get left. No. Uh, the league had just lost Russian hodl to European clubs, so actually Mirandini's arrival was something of a coup, really. He scored 23 goals in 67 games during his two seasons at Newcastle, which is not bad, is it, really? No, return? because they were... They were a poor side, and I think they were they were relegated, weren't they? In his second season, his second so, season, yeah, yeah. That's actually not bad. I, I I remember him as being worse than that, um, but for no particular reason. Just no, but don't, I don't actually have any specific memories. Just like an assumed understanding. So actually, to hear that's a bit of a surprise. He did take penalties. I think he might have got one at Anfield actually. I don't know, but um, but even so, that's not bad in a in a bad team. It's like the same. He was on a hiding to nothing, wasn't he? Because it was always going to be Brazilian, not Brazilian enough when he turned up. You know, if he didn't score yeah. 300 goals in two seasons, it was But also, be... imagine what he must have made of the first touches of his teammates. I mean, <laughs> seriously. Struggle to play Jackson. on the half turn. Yeah. 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 I mean, you can you can have a huge influence. Like, Janino is a great example of somebody who can come into a, a pretty mediocre team and be an absolute legend. Um, Muradina clearly wasn't that good, but it can't be easy coming. I mean, who would they have had, like, I don't know. I don't even know who he played alongside, but I bet they weren't. What well, didn't have a purest first touch. Well, he was good mates with Gascoigne. So, oh uh, God, I forgot through his first season of a Gaza there. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. Oh, didn't Gascoigne teach him a load of hilarious English? Probably. It sounds I like I don't did, know. Like, it sounds like something that like Gaza would have done. His first game for, for Newcastle, Scott, was was probably one of your favourite Liverpool performances of all time, which was the uh, the Steve Nichol hat trick. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and but I. I mean, I remember that game well and can't remember him <laughs> doing anything in it, really. Um, did he, although, did he get there? Was there a penalty that he, um, did he score for Newcastle? I can't remember that bit. Um, he scored a penalty the season after when they won 2-1 at Anfield. Yeah, I remember. I thought he had. But um, He gave it loads to the cop as well after he scored. It was quite a performance. The thing was, he was kind of unfortunate in that he turned up when there wasn't much football on TV, and and certainly if there was football, Newcastle United were rarely, mm. you know, rarely picked to to be the live game. So you know, when they were on, they were getting stuffed, um, usually by one of the you know top teams. Um, so you never really saw him do much. Like I say, he was like standing alongside Darren Jackson, you know. Who would just like wander around being very tall and confused? <laughs> the um, but yeah, I mean, said, it must have been a culture shock. It must have. Well, he was he, he took up a, a big friendship with Gascoigne, who introduced him to Brazilian. He introduced Gascoigne to Brazilian food, and the two used to spend many nights together playing the organ in Pontalan <laughs> Social Club and singing "Great Balls of Fire." When Gaza <laughs> left for Tottenham after his first, let's season. go back to the fifties. Yes. <laughs> When Gaza left for Tottenham, he gave Mirandini's daughter a dog as a present, which is, I don't know, Pete Gaza even that early in, in, in these yeah. these days. Um, yeah, they were relegated that second season. Uh, McFall, the manager, was sacked sack that October, and Mirandini was sold back to, to Palmeiras. He stayed for two years there before moving around three different Brazilian clubs. He then went to Japan. He returned to Brazil in 1995. He had a 27-year career. The fun, this is the thing, right? If you look at a lot of these Brazilian players, they all play into their 40s and play for about 40 clubs. But most of them, it's people People said Romario, you know, he was always in night... Romario doesn't drink, but he was always in nightclubs and everyone said it's bad for him. Well, he played until he's 42, and they all do. So the whole lifestyle can't be too bad for them. 
the thing we uh, must remember as well when he came to Newcastle, the fans loved him and invented the the um, the, the song. We've got Mirandinha. He's not from Argentina. He's from Brazil. He's fucking brill. Um, the actually, I remember when they signed Espril, uh, Faustino Espria, they tried to revive that. It didn't quite work because they used to sing, we've got Asperilla. He's not from Aston Villa. He's from Palmer. He runs like a fucking llama. <laughs> God. And that never quite took on, believe it or not. Um, yeah, so... So he turns really in 1995, played his final season at Fortaleza. Just to give you the figures on this, then, he had a 27-year career and played at 15 clubs. That's a journeyman ratio of 1.8 seasons per club, basically, which is respectable, but to be honest, with some of the journeymen we've had on here, we've had on here it's not in the elite level. Spending nearly two seasons at a club throughout your career is, is for, me, for our journeyman is, is, you know, very solid, to be honest. What's again another thing about Brazilians, Rob, that I think you've mentioned before is he then became a, an incredible journeyman manager. Oh, uh, yeah, the, yeah. I found this when I was doing the Kaiser book and I was looking into a lot of the players and the managers, and they just fuck it. They get honestly, you look at the, their records and it's ridiculous. They manage like five teams in a year. It's absurd. <laughs> yeah, since 1996, <laughs> he's had 24 temporary or permanent play, place, uh, managerial jobs. Often returning to clubs he's been to before. He's been Brazil, Saudi, Malaysia, the Sudan. He's currently a manager of somebody in Brazil. It's so bonkers, right? I do, just one quick story from Kaiser. Basically, when Flamengo sacked their manager in 95, I think it was, the uh, president called a journalist around and said, I want to come tell, call you around to tell you who the new manager's going to be. It's on this sheet of paper. Journalist looks at it. It's got his own name on it. He says, what are you talking about? He says, no, no, I need you. To be the manager, you and the thing is, it's not just Flamengo. But, um, was it Flamengo? I forget. Anyway, um, it was yeah, it was Flamengo, and they've got Romario at the time. He's the best player in the world as well. Who this bloke had had up the team falling out, falling out within the media, and there is like it's just it's it's such Can a bonkers culture. It's brilliant. What the fuck are you did here? I'm not answering yeah, any of your yeah. questions. Yeah. No, I'm your new manager, Imagine. mate. Yeah, and the new Arsenal manager, Michael Cox. <laughs> <laughs> um, but basically, Barry let's see. Yeah. Baz talks a good game. Let's see him sort Sunderland out. Yeah, don't, don't <laughs> joke about these things for Christ's sake. <laughs> well, I was ben... going to say that this like uh, list of teams he he's managed is astonishing. There's what? How many? Twenty or thirty? Twenty-four. I mean, he's done. 24. He's never ever. He's never stayed any longer than a season at any club he's managed. He, he's nearly as flighty as Roy Hodgson. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, <laughs> you, you just had to get that in, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I did, yeah. So that is our journey of the week, Mirandinha. Fondly remembered in Newcastle, although probably mistily remembered by most people. And that brings us to the end of this return episode. Thank you very much, everybody who stuck it out to the end and also who's listened. And thank you very much to all of you who have become patrons. Hope to welcome more of you along. You'll hear from us soon about the Q&A episode, which is probably going to be the first week or two in September. So on the Patreon site, you'll get information about what's happening there. Um, thank you very much, Scott, for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thank you very much, Rob, for your time. Thank you very much. We'll speak to you all soon. Take care. Goodbye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? 
they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino's home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.